Hey everyone, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Carol Ann Flood, and I'm the worship director here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Our mission is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus your whole life, or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help you draw near to the person of Jesus, be challenged and encouraged by His Word, and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you are in Him. Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. I am so excited about next week, next Sunday, with Orphan Sunday and Baptism. It's going to be an incredible time. Uh, Welcome, if you're watching with us online, I hope you'll tune in with us next week as well, or maybe even come and uh, visit and be here. It's just going to be an incredible celebration. Um, So actually, at the end of this message, we're going to be taking communion together, uh, the Lord's Supper. So if you're watching online, if you have a moment, you can grab uh, some bread and some uh, form of of juice. That would be uh, awesome. Um, So you can participate with us as well. I'm excited to talk with us through week number three of the series. As Blake said, we're talking about the gospel message and how it's good news for everyone, for every single person in our world. Um, So I'll get us into our, our conversation this week. Uh, in this way. Let's be real for a moment, shall we? Uh, So I want to take you back to a cold February day. I think it was five years ago. I was uh, pulling out of the parking lot here at Frontline, getting onto Jupiter Avenue. Those of you who are local know exactly where uh, Jupiter Avenue is, the four-lane road right out here. And this was the vehicle that I was driving at the time uh, when I was doing this. Uh, A a white PT Cruiser. It was my dad's car. I'd given my son, Alan, my car. So my, my Father gave me his old car. This car had the amazing ability to go from zero to 60 in about five minutes. (laughs) And so I'm pulling out of the parking lot onto Jupiter Avenue. And as I do, I I look left and I realize there is a Nissan Altima coming really fast. And um, as I'm pulling out, it's it's kind of an icy, cold day. So I'm trying to hit the accelerator. And this thing just, this car is just a dog. Like it just doesn't go fast. I'm trying to get traction. And so um, this Nissan Altima, what he does is he, he comes up behind me, the driver. And you know how they go. They get like an inch away from your bumper, like right this, right? And then what he does is he, you know, flips over to the left-hand lane, flies by me. And then just as he gets, just clears my front bumper as he passes me, he turns the wheel in and, you know, kind of cuts me off, um, I guess to teach me a lesson uh, for, for cutting him off and, you know, going slow or whatever. The problem with that was, uh, again, it was kind of an icy cold day. When he did that, it startled me when he cut over like that. So I, I turned the wheel and I hit the brakes. When I did that, I completely lost control of the back end of that, that PT Cruiser. I slid this way on the road and then I went straight over into uh, the ditch on the right side of the road. And I was terrified. Literally, I'm, I'm trying to get control over this car. There was that moment when I went into the ditch and the car went sideways like this. I thought, man, I'm going to roll this thing. I'm going to end up, you know, like upside down in this car. It was, it was scary and terrifying. So I'm fighting. I finally get the car stopped. And I look up just kind of to see this Nissan Altima. This guy just keeps going. All I see is his back lights, you know, as he just continues down the road. So the first thing I felt in that moment was fear, right? Like terrified. I think I'm going to crash the car. The second thing I felt was anger. I mean, white hot anger. I'm not proud of what I'm about to tell you. But for the next few minutes, I lost my mind completely. I got that car as quick as I could back onto the road on Jupiter Avenue and I floored that PT Cruiser. 
I got it up to 80 miles an hour on Jupiter on a 45 mile an hour zone. Suddenly I didn't care about the ice on the road. I caught up to that guy in the Nissan as we crossed the Jupiter Bridge over Grand River. I pulled up on the left side of him, right next to him, and then I ran my car as close to him as I could, forcing him off into the shoulder to where there was nothing but the guardrail and the drop into the Grand River next to him. And I held him right there. When we're driving down, he's, his car's bouncing along because that's right where the snowplow throws all the ice in the snow. And I, I kept my bumper just like this, just in front of him. So if he tried to speed up, I could just kind of keep cutting over and keeping him there. And if he slowed down, I slowed down with him. And I just rode him all the way on that shoulder, all the way down the bridge. We got up to the light at West River Drive. The light turned red, as fate would have it. I pulled up in the left-hand lane. He pulls up in the right-hand lane. I roll down my window, he rolls down his window, and we just begin to just scream at each other back and forth through the cold air. We're just screaming. The light turns green. He takes off from the line because he had a much faster car than me. (laughs) And as I kind of took off from the stoplight, you know how it goes, like your adrenaline comes down and you sort of like come back to your senses. As as I'm driving away, literally the Holy Spirit whispered to me in in a gentle way, not in like a a mean, condemning way, not an audible voice, but literally the the question I just felt the Holy Spirit whispered to me in that moment was, Brian, if that guy were to walk into Frontline Church this Sunday, (laughs) how would you explain what just happened? I literally had this picture in my mind of standing right here preaching and looking up and seeing that guy walk in the door. That could happen. This wasn't that far from this building. And and so the first thing I felt was, you know, fear. And then the second thing I felt was anger. And then after that, just embarrassment, right? Just how could I act this way? And even right now, retelling the story both services, like I just feel embarrassed uh, when when I retell this story. Have you ever done anything like that? Anybody? No one else honest in this room. Okay, awesome. That's great. Good for you. I mean, maybe, hopefully nobody's done anything that stupid like I did. But have you ever lost control of your anger in a moment where your anger just sort of boiled over toward another person, another human being made in the image of God, but in that moment you have no ability to see them as a human being just like you, made in the image of God, you just see them as your enemy. This person is my enemy. This this person is a threat. This person is somebody I have to to go after. We've all done this. We all have these moments, don't we? For some of us, this wasn't just a moment. These aren't just moments in your life. For some of you, it's been decades. And it's been decades you've spent focused on an enemy, angry. What any good therapist will tell you is that anger is a secondary emotion. Okay, what that means, anger is a secondary emotion. It means that anger is an emotion that we feel because we first felt another feeling first. In my case, that day on the bridge, it was fear, right? But, but sometimes it's shame. If someone gets too close to something in our lives that, that, and makes us feel ashamed of something, anger oftentimes can explode. Other times it's hurt. But those are usually the, the big three, fear, shame, and hurt. And, and what happens when we get angry, that secondary emotion, that reaction kicks in, and we begin to react with anger, what's really happening in that moment is we think that we're trying to get control over the situation or get control over the person that did this to us or, or get control of the feeling, the emotions that we were experiencing. But in actuality, just like for me that day, what happens in that moment is you actually look completely out of control, don't you, when you lose control of your anger toward another person. 
And that, that's what oftentimes happens to us when we become focused on, on an enemy, is that we, we lose time. It has the ability, our anger can steal years sometimes away from us. It erodes relationships. I know people would just say, like, I just grew up in a home where my dad was just, he was just an angry person. He was just always angry. That's all I ever knew him as. At the very least, it steals away our purpose. Time and energy that we could be focusing on our real purpose that God's given us instead gets redirected toward some enemy that we feel like we've got to go after. And so the question we're asking this morning as, as we look at the gospel message is, how does the gospel call us to respond to our enemies? How does the gospel call us to react, to respond to our enemies? I love what Andy Stanley said in his recent book, Not In It to Win It. He said, actions speak louder than words, but reactions speak louder than both. Isn't that true? We're, we're judged by our reactions when we're triggered, when something happens. How do, how do we respond to our enemies? How does Jesus call us to do that as, as his followers? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look this morning, this whole series, we're looking more at the teachings of Jesus and how Jesus defined his kingdom. And what we're really doing today is we're going to look at Jesus' words about how the gospel applies to our enemies from the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest sermon. It's kind of his manifesto of how to live as a follower of his. But, but, and for many of you, you've grown up around church or you've been around long enough, you've heard these words before. But this morning, I want you to hear them through the ears of a first century Jewish person living in Judea. So if I could paint the picture for a moment, if, if you imagine being a Hebrew in the first century in Judea, you are living in a militarized zone. Everywhere you look, you see Roman occupation. The Romans ha have come in, food is scarce, and they're taxing you just ridiculous amounts of money. Some people say somewhere between 80 to 90 percent, depending on the era and the time. And not only that, but the Romans are coming along and they're stealing property, literally just taking property that has been in your family for generations and just claiming it for themselves. Now, in response to that, you know people in your town, in your community, you, you know friends who have joined these insurrectionist groups. Uh, let's see, there was the Sicarii. Sicarii means dagger men. There's literally this group of people, what they would do is they would sneak up behind Roman officials in like dark alleys and slit their throats. They'd murder them and then try to, like, escape away quietly. Another group uh, was known as the Zealots. In fact, Jesus, one of his disciples, if you remember, was named Simon the Zealot. That wasn't his last name, okay? It's, it was this insurrectionist group. It was a, a nationalistic group that basically relied on guerrilla tactics, really what we would call today terrorism, to upend the, in any public way they could the Roman occupation and, and disrupt and murder and kill them. Not to mention that, but whenever you turn to your sacred religious text, what we would call today the Old Testament, but for them it was, it was their sacred religious text, it was full of these bloody, violent stories of oppressive governments being overthrown and a promise that there is going to be a coming king who would one day rule the nations. And so what happens is every few decades, a new Messiah would come along. And this Messiah would come along, and every time the story is the same, that he would draw a crowd, he would rally this army, that he would weaponize them, and then they would go to war against the Romans, and they would be utterly decimated. In fact, the last time this happened in your lifetime, 6,000 Jews were crucified by the Romans. Enter Jesus. 
And, and crowds of people are beginning to follow Jesus. And you're thinking to yourself, maybe he's actually the one. Maybe he's the real deal. Maybe he's the real Messiah. After all, I mean, this guy can do miracles. I mean, he could like heal people on the battlefield if they got hurt. He could feed an army out in the wilderness, you know, with five loaves and two fish. You're thinking this guy could really be it. And so you're leaning in as, as Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And you're like, come on, Jesus, get to the good part. Get to the part where you tell us how we're going to take back our country from our enemies. And he finally gets there. Matthew 5, verse 43, this is what Jesus says. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Okay, so imagine in this moment, if you're a first century Hebrew, how disappointed are you right now? Like, seriously, Jesus? That's your great advice of how we're going to win? You know, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That's your plan. That's your campaign slogan. Really? And so immediately the question that goes through your mind is, okay, well, who are we talking about exactly? Who is my enemy, right? Let's categorize this person. It's probably somebody like distant or vague, right? Somebody I don't have much contact with. It's interesting. The word that Jesus uses here in the Greek language when he says, uh, when he talks about enemies in this passage, it's the Greek word ekthros. Now, ekthros is a really interesting word. There are other words Jesus could have chosen to use. It's the broadest, uh, widest used word for enemies. And so we see it apply in, a much, in many different ways throughout uh, the New Testament. So it can apply to an individual enemy, someone personal, some, some individual that's harmed us or hurt us. So, so it could apply to that coworker who keeps blaming you for things. It could apply to that boss that, you know, treats you unfairly. It could apply to the guy that cut you off in traffic. It, it could apply to your ex-boyfriend who won't shut up talking to people, right? It, it could be, so ekthros applies to those people, those individual enemies, but it's such a broad word. Other places where it's used, it, it applies to a group of people. The word enemies replies to cultural and political enemies, a them, those people. I can't imagine that any of us have, uh, you know, a group of enemies two days before an election, right, that, that we think of as our enemies. That's who he's talking about. And so here's what I'd love to do uh, just in the, in the time we have here together. I'd love for you just to take a moment and get that person or that group of people in your head. So as we talk, I want them to kind of go before your mind. For some of you, literally, there's a person right now. There is an individual who you would say, that person is my enemy. They've hurt you. They've brought shame into your life in some way, and you, you get angry even thinking about them. For others of you, that's not a person. It's not an individual. It's a group of people. I want you to get them in, in your head. It's these people. It's what they do. And I just, as we talk and as we reflect on what Jesus' words might say to us today, just allow that into your mind. Here's what I want you to notice from this passage. This is because this is where uh, people go right away. 
I want you to notice Jesus doesn't just dismiss evil behavior. He doesn't just say, hey, you know, if somebody mistreats you or harms you, or like, just don't say anything. Don't call that out. Don't name it. Just be a nice guy. That's not what Jesus says. Notice he names it and calls it. Even in this passage, he talks about how God causes the sunlight to, to fall on the good and the evil. He says that he causes his rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Then he talks about, you know, corrupt tax collectors. So even in this passage, Jesus doesn't shy away from naming it and acknowledging evil and injustice and corruption. In fact, if you read all the Gospels, all through it, Jesus doesn't shy away from calling sin, sin. And we should do that. That's, that's what we should do. I think it's always the right thing to acknowledge that. Jesus went around acknowledging and calling sin, sin. He had no problem defining that. He had no problem defining evil and injustice. We should name that in our world when we see it. But the, but the question remains, what do we do with the people, the human beings, the individuals that we would refer to as our enemies who embody those things? How are we called to respond? What I think is interesting is Jesus could have commanded us to just like, hey, just ignore them, right? Like, just do no harm. Like, don't just, don't go 80 miles an hour and try to catch up to them on the bridge, right? That's what he could have said. Just don't do that. Don't retaliate. But in fact, what he does is he goes a dramatic step further than what would have been the conventional thinking of the time of, hey, just, you know, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, he says, you, if you're a follower of mine, you take the first step to love that person back. You. Even against somebody who's evil, corrupt, and just, you take the first step. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. How could Jesus ask us to do something like that? How could he be that insensitive? The reason Jesus could say that is because Jesus didn't just talk about this. He did it. We're in Matthew's gospel. If you go all the way to the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is hanging on a cross. And what he does is he begins to pray for the very people who put him on the cross. You remember, he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. In that moment, Jesus is literally praying for those who persecuted him. He's loving his enemies. He's not, he didn't just talk about it. He actually embodied it. He acted it out. He did it. But, but not just that. If we could take this even a step further, if you really understand the gospel message, what Jesus did is at one time we were enemies of God. We were God's enemies because of our sin, because of our brokenness, because every single one of us has been born into a sinful fallen world. What the gospel tells us in Romans is that we were enemies of God, but Jesus took the first step to love us back even when we were unlovable. Even just Jesus' appearance here on this earth was an act of him coming to love us first. This is Romans 5.10 is exactly what it says. It says, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. That word enemies there is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 5. It's the Greek word ekthros. We were enemies of God. Whoever that person is, whoever that group of people is that you've got in your mind right now, that's what we were to God. And what Jesus did, the gospel tells us, he took the first step through his ultimate act of death on, his death on the cross and his resurrection to love us back and to make us uh, right with God again. So as we, as we begin to like turn this message to ourselves, as we begin to look at, at ourselves a little bit, look inward and say, what is, what is really, 
you know, the action that we need to take today. Um, I just want to ask and wrestle with the question, why is this so hard for us to do? <laughs> right? Because here's the thing. Many of you, are, nothing I've just said is new to you. For some of you, uh, some of you it's been brand new. But some of you, you've grown up in the church. You've heard this your whole life. You've read that passage your whole life. It's no surprise to you that you were an enemy of God at one time and Jesus, uh, you know, loved you and made, draw, drew you to himself. It's no surprise to you that Jesus calls us to love our enemies. So why is this so hard to do? It's hard for me to do. If you didn't pick up that from the opening story I told, I don't get this right all the time. This is so incredibly difficult to actually live out. Why? I I would tell you, I believe the reason it's so hard to live this out is because our anger actually can become an identity that we embrace. And I would tell you right now in the cultural moment we're living in right now, That's what's happening everywhere. We are more and more and more defining ourselves by our anger, by who we're against, by who our enemies are. And we're we're doing that everywhere, outside the church and inside the church. We we claim an identity based on who, who we're offended by. It's this identity of being perpetually offended perpetually triggered, always triggered, and remaining angry because there's, like we were talking about before, there's a sense of control. There's a sense of agency. There's this illusion, this lie that we believe that, man, if I'm just angry, it's going to give me these handles on this situation. I'm going to feel powerful. I'm going to feel, and so we hold on to unforgiveness. We withhold reconciliation from others, and it becomes our, our identity for some of us for our whole lives. And that's not what Jesus invited us into. So here's a helpful question. I would say this, this is maybe the most important thing of the whole message. If we could, let's just kind of explore uh, maybe a helpful question to kind of get at. Where are we at with this? Um, go ahead if you could. That next one. Um, no, back up a little bit. <laughs> there it is. Am I shaped by my enemy or am I defined by my enemy? That's what we're wrestling with. Am I shaped by my enemy or am I defined by my enemy? This is, this is a critical question, the hinge point of whether or not we're allowing our anger uh, to become our identity. Am I shaped by my en- enemy? Or am I defined by my enemy? Wrestle with this. As you think about that person, as you think about that group of people, what's the difference? Uh, here, here's what I would say. Uh, it's okay to be shaped by your enemy. In fact, I would say all of us are. Whether, whether you want to be or not, we're all shaped by our enemy in good ways and in bad ways. And I would tell you the thing, the wounds that we've experienced, the hard times that we've gone through, the difficulties we've had with other people, if we surrender those things to Christ, he will actually use those things in our life to shape us more and more into his image. It's sad to me how many people will get into a conflict at church and leave the church. It's like, no, there was your best op- discipleship opportunity right there. And you bailed out. It's better than any Bible study you'll ever do is learning how to work through reconciliation. Are you shaped by your enemy? It's okay. Because God can use your enemies, and he does, to shape us into his image. But the question is, if if you're defined by your enemy, if your identity has become defined by your enemy and your anger toward them, what I would humbly submit to you today is that you have not understood the gospel message yet. You may have gone to church your whole life, but if you're defined by your enemy, you you haven't understood fully really what the gospel is saying yet. And you need 
Jesus to come in and to heal you and to forgive you and to bring his grace into your life. So how do I know, right? How do I know if I'm defined by my enemy? Two, two things I would tell you. There are two primary ways that I think people become defined by their enemy. So, so see if any one of these two fit you. The first way that we oftentimes become defined by our enemy is that we attach our happiness to someone else's unhappiness. Okay? We attach our happiness to someone else's unhappiness. What am I talking about? I'm talking about when you go online and you watch their Facebook or their Instagram or whatever it is, and you're just waiting for you know, some news that they have fallen, that something bad has happened, that some terrible, or you're waiting for your friend to tell you about, oh, did you hear what terrible thing happened? And you're like, no, please tell me. Uh, and you celebrate. You're like, yes. Whenever you see something bad happen, then you have attached your happiness to their unhappiness. And the inverse is true too. Whenever something good happens to them and you see it, you're like, oh, it ruins your day. What that is, that's a forgiveness issue in your life. If that's happening in your life, you've attached your happiness to someone else's unhappiness and you're allowing yourself to be defined by your enemy. That's what you're doing. And Jesus would invite you, he would call you, you would say, there's so much freedom. There's so much life on the other side if you'll just let me help you work through forgiveness for that person. That's the first way. The second way we're defined by our enemy, primarily, is we attach our choices and behavior to someone else's choices and behavior. You've seen this. You, you've experienced it. If the first was a forgiveness issue, this, this one is a blame issue. It's the person that says, well, you know, I would love to change that about my life. I would love to act differently. I wish I could. But, you know, because of what they did, you know, I can't. It's too bad that they, did, that they chose to do what they did because now this is just the way it is. This is the way I am. I can't change. Okay, you're allowing yourself to be defined by your enemy. That's what you're doing. That's a blame issue, and Jesus wants you to let him have that. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that we would not be defined by our enemy? The reason is because what the gospel tells us is that Jesus wants to be the one who defines our identity. Jesus wants to be the one who defines who you are. His love for you, his forgiveness his grace, who he is, his mercy. That's what he wants to be the thing that defines you. And when you allow Jesus to have complete authority of your life and you allow yourself, you may be shaped by an enemy, but when Jesus is the only one who's allowed to define your identity, it changes you from the inside out. You're no longer, uh, you know, defined by your anger and who you're against and who your enemy. You're defined by the love of Christ and who he is and what he's done in your life. I would tell you, your identity cannot be defined by both your enemy and Jesus. That doesn't work. I've tried it. <laughs> it doesn't work. What either happens is either you will allow Jesus to define your identity and you will come to a place of being able to forgive and live freely in him, or you will come to a place where your enemy defines you more and more and you will just become more and more angry, more and more defined by what you're against. Do you know any Christians like that? Yeah, this is happening everywhere right now. Jesus says, I want to be the one who defines you. Is it okay to call out evil, corruption? Yeah, of course, Jesus did it. But, it. but he calls us to be defined by his love, his grace, his forgiveness, by people who walk in that. And what happens is when we actually live that out and live into that, it changes things in our world dramatically. It's really the only thing that does. 
When I was 12 years old, I found myself for the first time in my life as the new kid in the middle school. Our family had moved to a new town. And so for the first time, I found myself like, I have to figure out how to make friends. I have to figure out how to, you know, being the new kid. And, and that, especially at that age, is such a, a time of great insecurity as I look back on my life. And so I remember I, every single morning, I would ride the bus to school. And it just so happened that my house that we lived in was kind of one of the last houses on the bus route. So the bus was packed. So I, I have this memory. Every morning I would get on the school bus and there would be hardly any seats left on the school bus. And so I'd walk down the aisle and it was like, you know, nobody's going to let the new kids sit with them, right? Everybody's just kind of like, nope, sorry, buddy. And I remember this like, like, like anxiety producing, like, where am I going to sit? Nobody will let me sit with them. But there was one kid that would always let me sit with him. His name was Chad. And every time I would get to Chad's seat, Chad would always be sitting there. He would pick up his backpack, he would scoot over, and he'd say, yeah, you can sit with me. And so I began to sit with Chad every morning on the bus and began to just kind of develop this friendship with this kid named Chad. What I noticed is when the school bus got to school, we would all get off the school bus. And as we walked off the school bus, what would happen is there would be this group of boys who would gather around Chad. And these were the cool kids. These were all the, the, the boys that I wanted to be friends with as the new kid. What would happen is this group of boys would just begin to mock Chad and make fun of him and laugh at him. He was kind of a, you know, awkward kid, kind of a nerdy kid. And so again, because this was the group of boys that I wanted to be friends with, I wanted to be known. What I did is I joined in and I I began to make fun of him. We did this every single day. I, I can't even imagine what this kid's life must have been life during those years. I literally have memories of like in the lunchroom, I remember like he would get his tray of food. He would go and sit by himself at at a table on purpose, like to be away. And we, this group of boys and myself, we would pick up our trays, go over to his table, sit down just so we could spend the entire lunch hour just mocking him, laughing at him. Well, what happened is this, this played itself out every single day. This whole thing, like in the morning, I, you know, no one would let me sit with them, but every, every day Chad would let me sit with them. And then we'd get off the bus and I'd flip and I'd begin just making fun of him and joining in with this group of boys. And what happened is over a period of time, it started to create this disequilibrium inside of me. It started to create this tension inside of me. And I would tell you, if Chad was retaliating against me, if he, wouldn't, if he wouldn't let me sit in that seat with him, if he was just angry back at me, it w- it, this tension would never would have appeared in my heart in my life. I wasn't a Christian at this point in my life. That disequilibrium, that, dis- that tension never would have appeared if he would have just gotten angry back. But there's something about that act of letting me sit with him and, and allowing me to be there, an act of love every single day, even when I was turning and flipping. And it got stronger and stronger to the point where I didn't like the person I was becoming. And I remember the day when it finally came where I I got off the school bus, Chad and I, just like every day, and that same group of boys gathered around Chad just like they did every single day. And I found I just couldn't do it anymore. Chad remained that awkward kid, but he and I were friends all through high school. See, See, Until you realize that Jesus did that for you, nothing's going to change. You're just going to continue to be defined by your anger and your hatred of your enemy. But when you realize that Jesus, what he did is he he didn't just give up his seat. He gave up his life while we were still his enemies, while we were still 
sin, sinning and living a life apart from God. That, that's what Jesus did. When you let that into the core of your being, when you let it melt your heart, when you let it transform you, it will change your identity. It will change your behavior. And, it, and it's the only thing I would tell you in our world that has the power to change our world. So what do we do with that? I was thinking about like application. I was thinking about coming up with some big, you know, here's how to apply this or here's what to do. But in terms of just taking a next step, for some of you right now, like this is, this is hard. Uh, I just thought, let's land with what Jesus invited us to do as a next step. His own words, what Jesus said was just pray for those who persecute you. You know what I love about that? It's so simple. You don't have to like someone to pray for them, do you? You don't have to feel goodwill towards someone in order to pray for them. I would also say, if you're in a situation where you're being abused, where you're being hurt, where truly evil is, is happening, you don't have to stay in that situation in order to pray for them. In fact, you should put boundaries in place. You should step away. You should get out of any situation like that. But you can still pray for that person. You say, well, that's not going to change them. No, probably not, but maybe it will. But, for, but the sure thing is it'll change you. So let's do that right now. Would you bow with me? And uh, Carol Ann's gonna lead us into communion here in a moment. But before we do that, again, just put that person, that group of people in front of your face. Jesus, we just bring our enemies to you this morning, knowing that you're mighty and powerful to save and to reconcile and to redeem everything in our lives. God, um, would you use our enemies to shape us more and more into your image? But Jesus, we just right now claim in the name of Jesus that we are defined by none other than your name, than your good for us, Jesus. We are defined by none other than you. We don't want to be defined by our anger. We don't want to be defined by who we're against. We want to be defined by who we are for. And that's you and the gospel. So would you, would you to that end, God, would you show us how to love our enemies? Show us how... Uh, to pray for those who persecute us. To show us how to be different, like you said in your word, to be different than, than how everyone else is because we're marked by you. Our identity is defined by you. To that end, God, would you lead us? We ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said. We hope this message encouraged you in seeing who God is and who you are in him. If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com forward slash connect. We look forward to connecting with you there and we'll see you back here next week.